welcome, good morning. And uh, as we are doing this, you know, when you hear a song like that, a lot of times you say, well, why would you play a song like that? Well, one of the things is, as a church, we'd like to hear, have the world hear our songs. But sometimes it's really good to hear what the culture's saying, right? And what is the culture saying back to us as a church? And this song, you might say, well, you know, it's really talking about, if you looked at it one way, it sounds like a guy talking to a gal or a gal talking to a guy and, you know, kind of, you know, where are we in the relationship? And I'm not sure I believe where we are or what you're telling me. But Zach actually did some research on it and looked up the fan website space. And uh, what they said there was that this is actually the, a question the writer was posing to Christians. So when you think of it through that lens, it completely changes the context of the song. And the guy's writing through his life experience and then looking at the Christian and saying, why, I don't, I'm not sure I believe what you're saying. I'm not, why should I believe what you're saying? Listen to the words again. It says, preset all your pretty feelings. May they comfort you tonight. I've been climbing over something. I'm running through these walls and I don't even know if I believe everything you're trying to say to me. I don't know if I believe. I don't even know if I want to believe is how the words go. And so they sense something there, but they're wrestling with it. They're trying to find it. And this just raises the whole question of doubt. And can I, can I believe those who think they have answers or at least are offering some answers, especially the church? He's talking about these difficulties, running uh, over something, running through these walls. And what he's really asking is, how does what you have to share impact me in any significant way right how does this bounce against the reality that i'm running against i don't see the connection between the jesus you're talking about and the, and the world i live in and it's a fair question if you're here this morning or knew you you may be asking yourself you know that's really true and and i'm even sitting here this morning and brand new you may have come with a friend or you may have come result as a mailer or uh, anything i'm saying well uh, you know i'm here but uh I'm not even sure what kind of church I walked into this morning. What what are you guys even really about? Let me just give you a a thumbnail sketch of us, who we are here at Norfew, so you'd have a picture. Uh, At Norfew, uh, we're helping each other. Our goal is to become more like Jesus. And how we're doing that is by celebrating God. You just experienced that. Uh, We do that together. We serve one another, and we share our faith. If you want to know, bottom line, we love Jesus. We love the Word of God. They are two anchors. And uh, because of that, we work really hard at loving each other. We're not perfect. It's not easy, but we're commanded. And uh, even loving others who haven't come to know them yet. And so we realize when it comes to that sort of thing, that doesn't always happen the best in this large venue. And so one of the things that's really a big push here at Norfew is community groups. And uh, when... uh, Real life, more than often not, happens in small clusters. You know, if you think about what happens, it's really in a a small group setting that a lot of the stuff really rolls out, right? And uh, so when we're looking at community groups here, our whole theme is don't do life alone. And the idea of a community group is it's a small group of adults, anywhere from 8 to 12 people, meet on a regular basis with the goal of belonging, bonding, and building, right? We belong, we bond, and we build. And our motto is don't do life alone. The theme behind that is everybody needs posse, right? You've got to have people who will ride the trail with you. And we all need friends. We all need people who know what's going on in our lives 
and cry with us when things get tough and celebrate us, celebrate with us when things go well, right? Did you ever have some celebrate and there's nobody around? That's really kind of lame. And so we found, like many other churches, we did not invent this. We did not discover this. We're walking in the footprints of a thousand, two thousand years of churches who've discovered this. It's just, you got to break it down into smaller groups. And that life happens best in small groups. Why? Because of the theme we're talking about this morning, you need to have a group of trusted friends when stuff hits the fan. You've got to have people around that you can talk to. And that leads us right to our topic this morning of when, when stuff hits the fan. You know, if you think about it right now, bad things have happened, right? And even as we're sitting here this morning, bad things are happening. And it's highly guaranteed that bad things are going to happen in the future. And so we decided to look at some of these bad things and what happens when they hit the fan. It's funny, we came up with that title. And we got a few amount, number of comments off that title, right? And... Uh, uh, I laugh because it's all city people. Uh, my family was all here from the farm. They were laughing, going, that's awesome. <laughs> right? Because they grew up on the farm. When you shovel it all day, it's not a bad word. And um, and so they they were here laughing with that. But when we're looking at it, we, we wanted to look at, um, you know, in that blank, there's a lot of words you could put. There's probably several hundred words we could put in that blank. But we chose six. And here's the six words we're going to look at next six weeks. The first word today, what we're going to look at is catastrophe and what happens when catastrophe hits. Uh, and we'll talk about that next week. We're going to talk about loss. Obviously, when catastrophe hits, there's loss involved. And many of you have been through that and uh, have recognized that and have had to wade through that. You never would have signed up for it. It picked you. You didn't pick it. Probably the third one, probably the most painful one in the list is betrayal. If you've ever been betrayed by somebody you deeply trusted or loved or you've been thrown under the bus by somebody that you've counted on, um, if you've ever gone through divorce, you know what we're talking about. This is a, a difficult one to overcome. The, the next topic, week four, will be pain. Uh, all of us have experienced pain. Not all of us have experienced it on the same level. We're going to be talking through the different types of pain and uh, how to, how, what we're looking at, how to deal with that. The fifth one, it's an interesting one. Disappointment. Anybody in here ever been disappointed? Right? And a lot of it has to do with, you know what? I am so disappointed because somehow life did not follow the script that I wrote for it. And I am not anywhere close to where I thought I would be with the picture I had of my life. And what do I do with this script? And what do I do? And that leads us right to the next one. What do I do when I'm stuck with this script and I don't feel like God's answering my prayer? The last topic, week six, will be silence. What do I do if I'm going through catastrophe, I experience normal loss, and I don't hear his voice? Why don't I hear his voice? Um, I know he's speaking. I see him speak to other people. Why, why don't I? Why is it so quiet? Right? So we're going to look at those six topics uh, coming up, we're going to explore what happens, the effect the Bible says about it, how to respond. But before we go any farther, let's pray. All right. Would you join me? Fathers, we entered this series, as we said in the previous two services, uh, you have answers for these. We don't. And a lot of our life scripts are very different than what we would have thought. And we're forced to rethink through things like pain and disappointment and betrayal and 
things that we would never have written into the script or even been able to comprehend back when we were, say, in junior high or high school. And Lord, as we do that, we recognize, uh, as we come to catastrophe today, we recognize that that's a, a topic that all of us are aware of. It, some of us have experienced it firsthand, some of us secondhand, some of us have watched and just said, boy, I hope that never happens to me. And Lord, as we think about that, as we wrestle with it today, um, my prayer is that as as I'm talking, you will also be having a conversation. You can do that with your spirit. I don't know hearts. I don't know where people have come from. I don't know what they've been through even this week. But you do, and you can highlight something that could really begin a serious conversation with them. And I just pray you have freedom this morning to come among us and do that. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. So let's begin with the uh, first word this morning. What topic we're going to look at is catastrophe. Uh, Catastrophe is a word that all of us would like to avoid. Uh, Catastrophes strike on a number of different levels. They can strike on the macro or the big level. They can strike on the micro or the small level. And um, most of us, for example, have watched or experienced uh, catastrophes on the international level. Level. This picture you probably remember. This is a picture of the Indonesian tsunami. Remember when that came rolling in and uh, destroyed? In uh, less than 24 hours, 230,000 people lost their life. And some of those images are seared with us. Like we saw people standing on buildings and knew they couldn't get out and realized they're dead even as they stand there. And the impact of that measures in our spirit even today. Um, We've experienced pain on a national level. I think this image is permanently engraved in our memory. We've just celebrated the anniversary, the 14th anniversary of it again. And uh, it staggered the conscience of our nation. Um, I'd like to introduce you to uh, Marcy Borders. This is Marcy Borders, a very nice looking black lady. And uh, most of you do not recognize Marcy in this context. Um, you wouldn't be able to say, uh, gee, you might go, that name sounds familiar. Why do I recognize the name? Well, you, you would recognize her in this context. She was the dust lady of 9-11. This was the famous photo taken, I believe, in Tower 1 before it collapsed. And she was shot by a photographer running through the building. This was Marcy as she dressed up for work. Marcy died last month in August from stomach cancer at the age of 42. They believe from all, inhaling all the dust from that incident. Some of the consequences of that day are still being rolled out 14 years later. Many of you remember this, Hurricane Katrina. Can you believe that's 10 years ago already? 10 years ago, and the devastation of that effect, there are parts of New Orleans and Louisiana that still have not recovered that are still, uh, have not been resettled, that people have not gone back to, have not been rebuilt. And uh, if you've gone down there and personally seen the devastation, it's astounding. And many of us were marked by that and um, saw that. The question is, uh, what is it like to actually experience one of these? Well, I'd like to point you to 1964. 1964, uh, what happened was called the Great Alaskan Earthquake. Some of us are old enough to remember it. And uh, in 1964, 
the it was called the Good Friday quake because it happened on Good Friday. The most powerful quake in the history of the United States occurred up in Alaska. It registered 9.3 on the Richter scale. And what it did was monumental in terms of the infrastructure of Alaska. And um, it just so happens that one of our own, Norm England, you guys know Norm. If you don't know his name, he's the bass player, right? Norm sits up here and plays bass. Norm lived up in Alaska, lived in Fairbanks. He was a boy in 1964. And we sat down and videotaped him and asked him, what was it like to go through a catastrophe like that? And Norm's going to share his thoughts with us. So would you watch the screen as Norm shares? My name is Norm England. When I was 14 years old, I lived in Kodiak, Alaska. March 27th, 1964. I remember that day pretty distinctly. I had gone to a movie and I was supposed to be home early enough to take care of my, my younger sister. And I went to this movie, and the movie got out late. I had just lost track of time, and I got home late. I was in trouble. So I came home and, and was eating a cold dinner and not getting a whole lot of conversation. All of a sudden, the, the table starts shaking. I thought it was our dog scratching. I looked down and there was no dog there. The shaking got worse, continued to get worse and worse, and I suddenly realized that this was an earthquake. The cupboard doors opened up. It sounded like a, like a crane. It was just this continuous rumble that was just growing as the shaking continued. My dad said, get under a doorway, get, get, find some place for cover. I remember looking at my parents for security, for something, in this moment of fear, and I couldn't find it. So after the earthquake was over, I remember going down a few blocks away to my brother's house to check on his wife and their small baby. Minutes later, my brother came driving up in his pickup and said, get the baby together and some blankets. We have to jump in the pickup and head for Mount Pillow. There's going to be a tsunami coming in. And I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding? We just went through this major event, and now we're dealing with something completely different here. There had never been a traffic jam in Kodiak in its history until that afternoon. We're sitting in this line of traffic and wondering if the traffic is going to move fast enough before this tsunami comes in and takes us out. Gradually, we started making our way up the hill and high enough in an elevation about halfway up Mount Pillar. I can remember the, the slow drive back down, down in the Kodiak, back to our homes. I didn't sleep well that night. When I woke up in the morning, my dad was already gone. He went down in the Kodiak. He was there for a few hours and came back and said, well, if you guys want to go and take a look at it, <clears throat> go ahead, hop in the car. And I remember then going down into the town and not believing what I was seeing. Complete devastation. 
nothing but debris. I remember looking at the main street in Kodiak, or looking for the main street in Kodiak, and not being able to discern where it was. It was a mess. It was completely destroyed. Kodiak was gone. You look at those pictures and it gets quiet really quick. The thing of the problem with Kodiak is Kodiak's fairly far away. But we've had some events here right in the area that uh, many of you would remember going through. Remember the uh, Nisqually quake, 2001? How many remember where you were? I was at North Shore Baptist. I was sitting in my office and I heard what sounded like a freight train. And all of a sudden the office and the table went, whoop, whoop, went whoa, what was that? And uh, amazing. We didn't get too much damage, but a number of areas, stuff really buckled. And uh, if you were close to that or down in Seattle, you remember that very distinctly. Of course, much closer even than that was uh, just recently the slide at Oso. That's just 20 miles north, and many of us uh, helped with that. Many of us uh, gave to that. Uh, Dave Weed was stationed up there uh, for the fire department, and uh, that, of course, was a devastating uh, event right here uh, in the in the area and when you're while you're thinking about that while we're wrestling that i want you to think about some truths about catastrophes some things that we know but are worth considering uh, having just walked through that first thing is that catastrophes are unpredictable you you don't have a calendar that tells you when catastrophes are going to happen oh it's the month of september so on the 15th will be catastrophe number one and in October will be catastrophe. They don't come like that, right? They don't set appointments. They don't let you know. They don't come to your door and knock ahead of time and say, oh, by the way, hi, I'm catastrophe. And at three o'clock on Friday, I'm going to come visit your house. That's not how it works. And so they're, they're very unpredictable. Now, we've gotten better at some, like quakes, tornadoes, etc., anticipating at least... Um, but then other ones like flash floods and car wrecks and explosions, just there's no way to prepare for it because it's instantaneous in its effect. And so um, they are tremendously unpredictable. Second thing is they're incredibly destructive. You look at those pictures and realize the power behind that, and it's astonishing. And the other thing is just the damage. Uh, Hurricane Sandy two years ago, East Coast, $68 billion in damage that it, that it it took out uh, Hurricane Katrina, $108 billion worth of damage uh, that it created with just one storm. If you look at the Midwest and the tornadoes that come ripping through, my family was here second service, so they're going, yeah, that's true. But uh, tornado damage, anywhere from one to three billion, depending on the year, depending if they hit open areas or whether they hit towns. Uh, but the one that went through Joplin was $1.8 billion worth of damage done with uh, that cluster of tornadoes that tore through that area of Tennessee and, and that part of the country. One good picture tells you all you need to know about their destructive force and power. Uh, none of us have the strength to stand up against that. The third thing is that they're indiscriminate. Um, like I said, they don't ask permission. Uh, and it doesn't matter 
If you think about catastrophes and those pictures that Norma sharing, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're old or young. It doesn't matter if you're white or black. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer or a city dweller. It doesn't matter if you're religious or an atheist. They all catastrophes strike across the board, and they don't discriminate, right? They go after everyone. And then the other thing is that they're very marking. If you've ever been through one of those or you've been through that type of event, uh, anyone who's been through it never forgets it, right? You're you're marked by it. It, They shape you for the rest of your life. I grew up um, with the Depression era generation, right? And uh, that was a financial catastrophe, uh, and that generation never got over that. Even in all the years of prosperity and abundance uh, that America experienced, they never got past that event of the, it shaped them all their life. Don't throw that away. You might need it someday. How many of you grew up with dads in garages who saved every bolt and screw, right? We had the door and here were the eight things and every bolt and screw, nails straightened out, right? Because they were totally shaped by, by that event which tells you how impacting, how marking it is. Um, if you've ever been in a, a terrible accident, it leaves that kind of scar, right? It's just wham, and then you're left to deal with the aftermath. And it's a, a crushing, difficult thing. Um, the thing about catastrophes, though, is that their impacts are proportional to your proximity to ground zero. So if you think of a target, right, and you think of bullseye, and then you think of the concentric circles out, the farther you get from bullseye, the less of an impact the catastrophe has on you. Let me illustrate. For example, in China, I believe it was three years ago, they had that huge earthquake, right? And I think some 50,000 people died in that quake. And that's an awful thing. That's a terrible thing. And, and many of us prayed for that. Many of us sent uh, relief effort for that. But in reality, if you ask, how did that impact me? The answer is not very much. Not that it isn't huge and not that it isn't terrible, but the truth of the matter, it happened 8,000 miles away. And so when you talk about how that actually affected me, the answer is not much, right? I can pray for them, I can feel for them, but the reality is it doesn't uh, impact me that greatly. Whereas if you start getting closer to the circle, let's say, that you have a neighbor and their nephew was killed in a car accident, all of a sudden the impact of that's more, right? Because you now suddenly know somebody attached to it. Versus you, you, it happens close to the circle. Someone you know very well at work or something happens and suddenly you're up at the hospital visiting and you're suddenly realizing, wow, they're, 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 it's, this is years. They my goodness, how are they going to recover from this? And, and you're caught in the, in the swirl of that because you're in the circle of that versus a bullseye. Uh, many of us have lost parents. Many of us have lost either one or both parents. Many of us have lost aunts and uncles. Many of us have lost friends and car accident or death or suicides or things that we never imagined existed back when we were in junior high. And we're, we're wrestling with the impact of that because there's a direct hit, Right? Uh, Scott just got done sharing about what it was like to walk through after the death of his wife. That's a bullseye. That's a direct hit. That forever shapes the fabric of who you are. And it has an enormous, enormous marking 
uh, potential. And what I found when it comes to catastrophes, because I've been around them a lot for 35 years, is that when we're caught in the center of one of these, really, if you think about it, there's a, really only two options uh, that are available to us. When The thing about um, catastrophes is they strip everything away. As they say in war, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? So when, when this hits, I've seen there's, there's two responses. Response number one is you draw closer to God. You cry out to Jesus, Lord Jesus, help me, right? At about seven decibels higher, right? Because you're like, Jesus, help, right? You just, wow, because you don't know what else to do. And so you're just, you're, you're drawn in, you're pulling for everything he's got for you. The other response is that you curse God and pull farther away. I've seen that happen. I've seen deathbeds where people have radiated with the glory of Jesus. I've seen them with the peace of Jesus letting everybody know, hey, it's all right. It's okay. I'm fine. It'll be good. Jesus has got me in his hands. Boy, when you're in a room like that, and I've seen people curse God on their deathbed and yell and scream and rail at God. You know, one of the great fears most of us have is being in a nursing home, right? And one of the reasons we fear it is not because of the food. Well, that's part of it. But one of the reasons we fear it is because we have watched others that we love be stripped of their faculties, right? We've watched the options get pulled away. And as we've watched the options get pulled away, we start to see things in them we never saw before, right? And if you go and visit a nursing home, uh, it's very common to see people who have known the Lord all their life and they're just talking, hi, how are you? And, and they're talking, and you see other people are angry and mad. The interesting ones are the ones who are uh, supposedly Christian, have gone to church all their life, but once those faculties get stripped away, they're just yelling and cursing at God the whole time. And what you realize is that was in there the whole time. They just were able to veil it because they had their faculties while they were at our stage. But once that got stripped away and the options were pulled away, you find people either cry out to God or they curse and pull farther away. What I found is that crisis or catastrophe amplifies or reveals the true condition of a person's heart and what it really was or is. And the extremity of the experience strips away our normal defenses and social protocol so that what's really in there comes out. Right? You ever see somebody get really mad and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that? Well, no, they meant it. They've been rehearsing it in their heart for a long time. right? And it's what we rehearse in our heart that gets revealed when catastrophes hit. You know, it's interesting to me when we talk about this kind of stuff, normally when you're speaking about kind of natural events, they talk about Mother Nature, right? Oh, Mother Nature is so wonderful. But then when something bad happens, they call it what? Acts of God. Well, how did it switch, right? You can't have it both ways, right? What, what, what's the deal there? And you find out that, you know, people have this picture, you know, it, and the question is, is God really angry and taking his wrath out on humankind? Or another question, is God's compassion kindled during the times of catastrophes? Which raises another interesting question. How does God actually look at catastrophes? And although we don't have all the answers, we do have some uh, pictures and hints in the Bible in terms of how God reacts and how God looks at them. I want to take you to one and suggest that 
uh, God's compassion is actually stirred up during times of catastrophes. Now, I'll take you to the book of Jonah. Now, most of us, book of Jonah, right? Jonah was supposed to obey God. He didn't. Jump, got thrown in the water, fish swallowed him, burped on the beach, right? That's, that's what we know of Jonah. But actually, there's some incredible life uh, kingdom lessons in Jonah that are really significant. And one of them is God's heart uh, towards catastrophe. And as you read the story, what you realize is that there is a great calamity coming upon Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is not a godly city. Nineveh is by no means Christian. Nineveh is hostile. Nineveh is treacherous. Nineveh is wicked. Nineveh is the headquarters of the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the group of people in the history of the world who created what we know as terrorism. All the stuff you see with ISIS and all that stuff came out of the Assyrian Empire. They would line the gates of their cities with the skulls of their victims, i.e., mess with us, this is what happens. They would line the walls of their palaces with the skin of their victims. That's how ruthless they were. And so great calamity is coming on this city. And God says to Jonah, hey, I want you to go talk to him. And Jonah doesn't like the idea at all because he is suspicious of God because God tends to act mercifully and he doesn't want any mercy whatsoever. He wants God to kick their butts. He wants them to take them out. Right? He wants them to annihilate it. And so to thwart it, he runs away. And of course, you know the rest of the story. Jonah shows up, right? And if you've been in the belly of a whale, you've got a pretty good acid wash for three days, get spit out on the beach. I mean, you would respond to if somebody looked like a ghost come walking through the door and say, in three days, your church will be destroyed. Repent, right? You'd go, ah, right? But I kind of imagine Jonah doing this uh, on the level of, you know, when a kid does chores, right? Minimal effort. All right, fine. Probably mumbled. Three days later, Jonah's going to be destroyed. Repent. What'd you say? Three days later, Jonah's going to repent, right? Because he doesn't, he doesn't want to do it. But he does do it. He goes through the city. He cries out, repent. Three days, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. And then he goes and sits on a hill. And he wants to see what happens. And as he's sitting on this hill... God provides this vine that grows up. And this is really exciting for Jonah because he likes it because it gives shade for him. It's cool. And so he's watching the city. And uh, as he is doing this, two things happen. First of all, the vine, uh, God sends a worm and it eats the vine and the vine wilts. And now Jonah is exposed. So he's dehydrated, he's sunburnt, and he's ticked. Right? And why is he ticked? Because the second thing that he sees happen really frosts his cookies. Okay? Because he's sitting there, he's already mad at God, he already knows God's going to be merciful, he's telling God you better not be merciful, and the city repents. From the king down, they throw on sackcloth. The best way to describe sackcloth to you, we know this today, is burlap. So they take their clothes off and they put burlap on instead. If you've ever... Uh, hauled a sack of potatoes, right? Burlap, that's what they wore. And it was designed to make you uncomfortable, make you itch, make you sick, so that you knew you were in extreme crisis and you would turn and repent towards God. The whole city, they even uh, clothed the animals with burlap. And Jonah's watching this going, no, 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 no! Ah! Here, look at what he says. You think I'm making, I know that's Mitchell's translation, but look at what he says. 
This, it says he prayed to the Lord. This is a prayer. Most of our prayers, oh Lord Jesus, you're so wonderful. That's not how he's praying. He's saying to God, isn't this what I said? We've had this conversation before. I told you back in Jerusalem when you started this whole stupid thing, you were going to, that's, that's why I ran. That's why I went to Tarshish. That's why I jumped on that stupid boat. Then you had me huffed in the water, fish swamming, burped on the beach. So I went and did it. And now they've repented. What in the world do you think you're doing? I knew. I, you, I knew. You're gracious. You're merciful. Slow to anger. Pony steadfast off your disaster. And I don't want you to relent from disaster. Smoke them. They're our hated enemies. They're like the Green Bay Packers. Take them out. Right? He's hostile. This is not, oh, geez, okay. He's wicked. And in that process, God responds back to Jonah with a little bit different picture. God says, hey, you want, you want to talk about that? He says, you know, you, you're kind of upset about that plant, aren't you? Yeah, I am to death. He actually says, take my life. I'm so upset that the plant died that you know, I'm sitting on your sunburn, dehydrated, and you're doing your stupid thing. You know, just take my life. I'm over. Done. You ever been there with God? Done. Done. Do you think this is funny? I'm done. Right? That's kind of a response to catastrophe. And God says to him, you know, funny thing, you didn't tend that plant. You didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. He says, you're more concerned about that plant than you are that city I had you go preaching. You know, you, you look at that city, Jonah, values. You know, I talk about values. Who's weighing what here? He said, shouldn't I have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And all the animals? What's he saying? There's 120,000 children there. They don't know their right hand from their left. Shouldn't I be concerned for them? Don't you think they deserve compassion? And what about my animals? I created them. Do you remember that, Jonah? I created those animals. I like them. What about that? And what God was doing is getting in Jonah's grill because he was saying, we're talking on two different levels here. You've got a small, short-term, myopic-focused level. You're, you're thinking about how to win. I'm thinking about how to save. Completely different focus. You know, the question would come, well, that's Old Testament story. What about New Testament? How did Jesus respond to catastrophe? And... Um, there's a story where some people came to Jesus and they were talking to him and they pointed out a local catastrophe that had happened. I don't know the exact circumstances. Scripture never tells us, but there were these people who got in trouble with Pilate and it had to do something with the sacrificial system. So they said, oh, Pilate said, you like sacrifices? Good. Here, I'll mingle your blood with theirs and we'll have sacrifice. And so he brutally slaughtered them. That's the kind of guy Pilate was. And Jesus uh, is talking about this incident when they come to him and he, he, he asks this question. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? In other words, uh, those people that got butchered by Pilate, do you think, do you think they were awful people? Do you think they were bad? Do you think? And they, they said, well, no, they weren't. And he says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Or those 18 on whom the, uh, the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Jesus pointed to catastrophe and said, you know what? When those two events, and he's talking about local events that people seem to know, had quite a bit of knowledge on. And he says to them, you know, those events happen. If you were in those events, would you have been ready? Would you have been in a right relationship with me? And obviously, if he's telling them to repent, they probably weren't. It's an interesting and amazing dialogue because Jesus doesn't try to fix the situation. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? I was taking a nap on that one, but I'll catch the next two. Or, yeah, you know what? That happened to those people, but they were terrible sinners. That will never happen to you. He didn't try to fix it. He simply said, look at that. How would you have responded to that if you were in the same circumstances? And what Jesus is saying, in effect, is what's your plan of action towards me? You can't control the circumstances of a life, especially when catastrophe hits. If something like that happened to you, would you be in a right relationship with God? God has a different picture of catastrophe than we do. We think about how it impacts here on, on our turf. God's thinking about how it impacts on an eternal level. It's a different different focus The biblical view of ultimate catastrophe could be contained in this passage that's found here in Luke where Jesus is talking. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. By the way, are there a lot of people in our culture who can kill the body? Right? We read about stuff all the time. Car wrecks, train wrecks, plane wrecks, uh, serial murders, uh, hospitals that are killing people. I mean, is there anywhere safe to go in our culture right now? There's all kinds of people that you could be afraid of in our culture. Jesus says, don't fear the ones who can just kill the body. What does he say? Fear those, fear the one, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. He's talking about God. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? He says, not one of them is forgotten before God. God doesn't forget people in catastrophes. He says, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I make that easy for him. Just seeing if you're listening. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's he saying? I got you covered. I got you covered if you're right with me. I got you covered in terms of catastrophe. I won't protect you from all the local catastrophes, but I will protect you from the eternal catastrophe of being separated from me. Jesus goes on to say this. He's talking about, he's talking about uh, being uh, the idea of being prepared. He said, you know, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Life was going on as normal. He says, until the day when Noah entered the ark, closed the door, and they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so that so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You know, I think a lot of you read the article this week about the flash flood in Utah and took out those seven people hiking in the canyon in Zion National Park. Here's the thing about those hikers. If you read the story, which I did, all of them were expert hikers, expert climbers, expert repellers. They knew their stuff. They knew what they were doing. And they still got caught by surprise and they were all killed. 
Jesus says, you do not know the day with the coming of the Son of Man. What will it be like? He says, it's going to be like this. He said, two, two men will be in the field. In other words, the work, they're at work. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, making meals, getting bread ready. One will be taken. One will be left. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this. If the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The Bible says the ultimate catastrophe is Jesus returning and you not being ready for it. That's really the ultimate catastrophe. Okay? Now, when we talk about this, and by the way, uh, the idea that, um, well, uh, let me come back to that. When we talk about those of us who are here at Norfew, uh, I want to illustrate this. Uh, we know that we're sitting on the verge of catastrophe, right? Many of you read the articles that came out this fall where the scientists say we're long overdue for the big one, right? Uh, earthquakes on an average 300 years in the Northwest, and we're like at the 600-year mark, so we're, we're due for the big one, and a big one is 8.0 or above, and uh, we will be rocking, all right? And it won't be music. And many of us know that. But when that gets reported, what's the response of most of us? It's a big collective yawn. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good, cool. Why, why, do, why do we do that? Well, even though most of us know about this, we've done very little, actually, next to nothing to be ready in case something actually did happen. We simply, when that happens then, we're going to simply be caught in unbelief. And when it strikes, we will be at the mercy of a catastrophe that will not ask for mercy when it happens. Why? Because we didn't prepare. We didn't anticipate. We didn't give ourselves some kind of margin that would help us go through. Likewise, most of us know that we're going to die. Right? We've seen people die. We know nobody gets out of this alive. And that's true. But again we tend to procrastinate. Sure, it's going to happen, but not right now. You don't understand. I'm a high school and I play guitar and I got a future and I got stuff rocking, right, Jake? And yeah, I'll die, but that's like when I'm Mitch's age. <laughs> you know, so I, I got a long time, right? It's not going to happen. And, and so we, we procrastinate. Right now, I'm busy. I... I I'll get right with God later. And here's the thinking behind that. I can anticipate the catastrophe coming. You know, if you watch the movies these days, right? There's these incredible catastrophe movies and the hero or heroine always get out alive, right? Jurassic Park. They always manage a way out of the park. There's always some circumstances where everybody else gets chomped in half except them. And so we think, hey, I am of those who will get out alive. I am not of those who will get chomped in half. And so I don't really have to prepare because somehow by my miraculous powers, I will survive the event. The Bible gives us absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that we will survive any type of catastrophe that comes our way. If you have come from a church or you listen to a church where they say, hey, it's all going to go well with you. You're never going to go through pain. You're never going to go through heartache. You're never going to go through loss. You're never going to experience catastrophe. They are selling you a bill of goods. The Bible doesn't protect you from catastrophe. The Bible protects you from eternal 
catastrophe. It protects you from the ultimate separation of you being separated from God. That's the catastrophe it's trying to prevent. God doesn't really care when you show up in heaven, although he's got it timed. He just cares that you show up in heaven. That's the push that he's going after uh, in terms of catastrophe. I will get right with God later. But the scripture and Jesus both warn us that now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Isaiah implores us to seek the Lord Jesus while he may be found. Uh, There's a a verse in Psalms uh, 32 up here on the screen. And it reads like this. It says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Another translation says, while you may be found. The idea there is that there is a time when there's a window when you can approach God, when he, you can have a conversation. And that window or that time to approach God in that conversation is not in the middle of a catastrophe, although there have been many, amen, Lord Jesus, help prayers that God has answered. But you don't want to be trying to figure that out in the middle when the roof's collapsing on you saying, take care of that ahead of time. Jesus is our ultimate protection when catastrophe strikes. And therefore, we have to learn to respond to the hard things in life that we need to lean closer to God, not farther away. And an interesting question is, under pressure, which way do you find yourself leaning? When it gets ratcheted up, right? And you get mad and you go, it made me do it. Do you find yourself leaning closer to God or do you find yourself leaning farther away? Which way do you find yourself leaning? Right? Closer or farther away? If you want this kind of protection, if you seek a safe and secure hiding place, that's what Scripture is offering in salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just invite you to call out to the Lord and ask Him to surround you with these uh, songs of deliverance. If you say, well, what would that, how would I word that? Well, how would I put what you've been talking about into words? Let me suggest a prayer to you and see if this fits. This is a potential way you could talk to God. Lord Jesus, it's true that I live in fear of catastrophe. And I recognize that living outside of your protection puts me at a much greater risk than what I had anticipated. I can't control circumstances if catastrophe hits on this level. And I certainly can't control it on a spiritual level. And I recognize that I'm in grave, eternal danger if I keep procrastinating. Lord Jesus, I'd call out to you and I'd ask in your name and in faith that you would save me from my sins and protect me from the catastrophe of being eternally separated from you. I ask that you would forgive me Help me learn to surrender to your leadership. I seek your protection. Not only you can offer regardless of what, I seek the protection regardless of what catastrophe would come my way. And I ask this in the name of Jesus and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. If that rings close, true, to where you are this morning, Say that to the Lord in your heart and say, whatever Steve was saying, that is true for me. Come up after, let me know. I'd be glad to pray with you. You know, as we close this morning, there's a lot of things you can put your hope in, right? Russell Wilson, your money, education, your health, 
your family, your country, your new car. But if you're coming this morning and wondering what we're all about, what Norfu's all about, I want to tell you what we're all about. We're a group of people who have wholeheartedly put our hope in the Lord Jesus. We know that catastrophe's coming. We've anchored our faith and our hope in his, on His promises and on His return. And uh, this last song that Zach and the team are going to lead us in speaks of that hope. And that, and it talks about what it's like to place your hope in the Lord for that. And so I'd like you to stand this morning, would you? And just think through the words as we're led in worship by the team.